Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch War Bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes, and get exclusive merchandise, all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. Hello and welcome back to Doomsday Watch. I'm joined today by author and former US Marine Elliot Ackerman. Some of you might remember that he joined us in season one of Doomsday Watch to talk about China, including in relation to his book, 2034, which discusses the possibility of a future conflict between the US and China. Today, fresh from a reporting trip to Ukraine, Elliot brings some fascinating insights about the culture of the military and some of the warriors that he met with frontline experience there in the fight. Elliot, welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Elliot, you're back now from Ukraine. Tell us a bit about that trip, what your experience was, the overall sense you were left with. Um, well, it wasn't my first time traveling to Ukraine. So I'd been there a number of times before the war uh, and I was in uh, Kiev and Lviv. You know, my overarching sense was that the Russians had obviously underestimated the Ukrainian resolve to resist. When I was there, which was uh, at the end of March, in middle of March, U.S. and NATO weapons really hadn't started coming into the country at the the pace they have now. So I think uh, things were a little bit, uh, well, they're still tense, but there was still that underlying question of whether or not in the end Ukrainian forces would be overwhelmed. But there was this sort of surprising, uh, at least to the world, but not to Ukrainians, uh, sense of Ukrainian overperformance and Russian underperformance. Uh, and I think that at the you know was really the headline uh, at the time, which was that Russia and really the world had misread the situation in Ukraine. I read a fascinating article that you wrote. Um, you basically, if if I recall correctly, you ran into a, a former U.S. Marine like yourself who had been a volunteer with the International Brigade, and you ended up sort of spending an evening with him and getting that real kind of warrior's eye view of the conflict. As someone who, who's yourself experienced conflict and as part of a highly motivated elite force, um, how important is that aspect of it, the, the motivation and the kind of esprit de corps, which the Ukrainians seem to have created in their military? One of Napoleon's maxims, and Napoleon's obviously someone who fought a number of battles in that part of the war, but one of his famous maxims is that in war, the moral is to the material as three is to one. 
you know, meaning that moral factors, esprit de corps, a nation's will to resist, you know, all of those are three times as relevant as the material factors, you know, who's got the most weapons and bullets and, and, you know, the most effective logistics. And so I think, you know, this is certainly the case in Ukraine where you had a military that does not have the resources that the Russians have, but does have this significant moral edge in terms of the stakes of what it's fighting for, which is nothing less than national survival and its ability to mobilize as a society. And so, you know, when you look at the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, which was initially with a force of about 200,000 soldiers, that sounds like obviously an enormous fighting force against a much smaller Ukrainian military. But when you realize that all of Ukrainian society has mobilized to fight this war, you're not fighting the smaller Ukrainian military, you're really fighting a society of 40 million people determined to resist that perceived Russian numeric superiority just vanishes. And it's interesting, you know, you brought up the idea of this American I, I, I spoke with, and he was, you know, one of many foreign fighters I bumped into while I was traveling there. Uh, you know, the battlefield is, you know, is really crawling with them. And it's not just Americans, it's Brits and, and, a, and a whole host yeah. of Eastern Europeans. Um, thinking about it, uh, at least fr- briefly from an American perspective, is it's remarkable because in the last six months, we've, we've witnessed in Afghanistan a complete inversion of what has occurred in Ukraine. In so much as in Afghanistan and Afghanistan's collapse or where I fought in, you had a Afghan military that we had seen significant U.S. investment in collapse in the absence of a true national will to resist the Taliban. Yeah. And now in Ukraine, we're seeing an underinvested in military hold against a much more powerful adversary because of that national motivation. And so I think it's interesting to put what's happened in Ukraine in conversation what's, with what's just happened in Afghanistan. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, having also spent time in, in Afghanistan, one of the things that really struck me was this question of the effectiveness of NATO and, and you know, foreign training. Um, uh, so in the Afghan context, as you observed, you know, uh, billions of dollars, millions of man hours from from Western militaries, especially the US, but but also UK and others, went into training up the, the Afghan National Army, apparently to very little effect. Um, at a smaller scale, but still as, as a major project, NATO forces, again, the US, I think Canada quite heavily involved in Ukraine, UK and others have been involved training the Ukrainian army, but that seems to have had an amazing effect. Is this still a, about this question of kind of morale and, and, and motivation, or is there something about other aspects of that story that help us understand how well the Ukrainian army has done in this, in this situation? Well, I hope you're, you'll, you'll forgive me for going back to you know, 19th century military theorists, but you know, Karl von Clausewitz fam- famously said that war is simply politics by other means. Yeah. So to, to create and implement a military strategy outside of a political strategy, or at least a political understanding, is really a fool's errand. And so I bring that up in the context of training and equipping military forces. You know, we don't do this in political vacuums. So, you know, is a train and equip program on its own a political strategy in a country that is experiencing war? 
No, it's not. It isn't on its own and it cannot be effective on its own in a vacuum. Now, if political conditions are ripe for that train and equip strategy uh, to support a very viable political opposition, like the government of President Zelensky, for instance, train and equip can be incredibly effective, if not decisive. And we're seeing that. So why when NATO comes in and trains and equips Ukrainians, it's so effective? Well, it's so effective because you have a highly motivated military and a highly motivated society that is united against an adversary. Now, if you look in conditions like Afghanistan, you know, like what we saw in Afghanistan, where you have a very fractious civil society, a very fractious and ineffective government, you come in there, it doesn't matter how much training and equip you do, it's not going to solve those political problems. And so, you know, you're really sort of just pouring water into a bucket with holes in it. Yeah. The most considered, the most important thing is the, pol- are the political conditions. Yeah. I was very struck. I was reading about the defense of Odessa. The mayor of Odessa historically was seen as very, very pro-Russia. Um, but in the context of his city being, you know, shelled and bombarded by, by the Russian Navy and, and airstrikes and so on, he is now uh, leading the citizenry in, in, you know, putting out defenses and all the rest of it. And I suppose that's just one case study of how the whole country has been given, given a kind of single national will to follow. Yes, but it's important also to situate what's happening in Ukraine right now along a broader timeline. And so if you, you know, if you're in Ukraine, the, the overriding sentiment is very much, well, the world has finally started paying attention to the fact that we've been at war for the last eight years. Yes. You know, and for many, they'll look back to 2004 and the Orange Revolution saying, you know, that was really sort of the start of renewed Russian aggression against Ukraine. That happens in 2004. Then you have the second Maidan in, 20, in 2013. And then in 2014, you have the, uh, the invasion and annexation of Crimea and the war in the Donbass. And that period extends up until February of 2021. Yeah. So Ukraine has, has been militarized and has been fighting this war for quite some time. Obviously, the Russian invasion sort of escalates the intensity and how existential it is for Ukrainians. But there has been this sort of erosion of pro-Russian sentiment in the wake of the, the Orange Revolution, Second Maidan, and up until the present. So um, it's all sort of been building to this. And, and yes, I mean, I think you know, your observation is, is spot on. The Russians have been highly effective in mobilizing Ukrainians against them. Yeah. Thinking back to George Orwell and actually his description of, of Hitler, uh, Orwell said, uh, Speaking of Hitler, I offer you struggle, danger, and death. And as a result, a whole nation flings itself at his feet. You could argue that that's what Putin is doing to Russians. And yet, uh, certainly the soldiers, they're relying on conscripts. The, the soldiers in the field don't seem to have that kind of existential urge to defend their country for whatever the argument might be. So what is, what is going wrong there for the Russians? Well, I think it's that that the the stakes for the Ukrainians are very, very clear. And when you put the stakes for the Ukrainians against the stakes that the Russians are fighting for, the the Ukrainian stakes are much higher. I mean, you're if you're Ukrainian, you're literally fighting for your your family, your home, and for your very identity, the ability to call yourself Ukrainian. Well, whereas for the Russians, you're fighting for an abstraction of we're going to fight Nazism. And and paint Z's on our tanks. Uh, it just doesn't. It just yeah. doesn't compare with the the clarity of the Ukrainian 
call to arms. And I would argue, you know, in the case of, uh, of, of Nazi Germany, you know, what you really saw Hitler do quite effectively was, was mine grievance. And it was uh, a gr the grievance of the end of the First World War and the terms that the Germans had to, had to finish it on and the decades of depredation that followed, which you could say there is an uh, analogy with the end of the Cold War uh, for the Soviets. Um, but I think what you're seeing in the Soviet or in the Russian case, as opposed to the German case, is the Germans were incredibly effective at innovating their military, creating a military uh, that was professional, uh, that was unlike anything the world had ever seen, uh, and that you know just just worked. And the Russian military is not the German military, and frankly, has never been the German military. The cultures are are very very different. So. I think in the case yeah. of Germany, you know, early success only animated their desire to conquer more and more until they eventually uh, bit off more than they could chew. I think that what the Russians have been lacking is that early success. And the reason they haven't found the early success is, frankly, because the Russian way of war is not the German way of war, and they're just not as effective at it. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Elliot, um, having mind to uh, the U.S. relationship with Russia, clearly, uh, since the end of the Cold War, Russia has never been a peer nation to America in terms of the size of its military or the size of its economy. But it is still seen as a global superpower. It has a huge nuclear arsenal and so on. And yet, as a professional soldier, a former professional soldier, you must look at the Russian military and sort of slightly shake your head at the the level of of amateurism and and bluntly just you know bad choices that seem to be being made do you do you think that the west has overrated russia well it would appear that the west has conflated russia's nuclear capability with its conventional capability and has underestimated the role corruption has played in hollowing out russian competence not only in the effectiveness of civil society, but in the just the general competence of its military. I, I, I saw written somewhere, you know, a, a kind of you know one of these man on the street interviews, and a Russian citizen basically saying, you know, nothing else works in this country. Why would you expect our military to work? Right. And that would seem to be a fair sentiment. I mean, there's also sort of the trope that in after the Cold War that Russia has basically turned into a, you know a gas station with nukes. Yeah. Um, and there's something to be said there as well. But obviously, you know, Russia as a as a nuclear state, you know, is one that the world still needs to contend with. However, I think what we're seeing in Ukraine is that this misstep on the part of the Russians seems to be pulling them away from being, you know, one of the great nations uh, of Europe and one of the world's great superpowers as they were during the Cold War and is pulling them more towards being a pariah state akin to a North Korea or an Iran. 
Um, and I think we, you know, the, the, the course that Russia takes post Ukraine is going to be a fascinating one and obviously an extremely important one just for the, the security of the world. Cause it's, you know, it, 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 Russia might be too large to truly be a pariah state. Yeah. And of course, part of that is, is what can the West do in, in a, in an interesting way, Western countries are sort of punctiliously avoiding speculation on, for example, the future of President Putin or the direct relationship with Russia. And everything is is through the the kind of lens of how we can support Ukraine, which, of course, has been attacked, has been invaded. It's a sovereign territory and so on. But I guess at some point uh, we are going to have to decide what we want to happen in Russia. What are the the tendencies and, and movements that we would seek to support or empower? This is a very interesting point and um, one where on my most recent trip to Ukraine, I had many of my own sort of preconceptions challenged by many uh, Ukrainians. And, and what I mean specifically is I think we have this sort of Western tendency, and I'll say it's, it's certainly a very American tendency, to look at a nation like Russia or any other nation and immediately sort of divert into this, you know, it's... It's not the people who are the problem in this country. You know, it's the it's the horrible despot sitting on top of the people. And if only yeah. we can get rid of the despot, the free spirit of these people uh, will rise up and they will chart a course uh, that is a positive course for their nation. And I think that's, you know, that that is a, an optimistic way to look at the world. Yeah. And I think when we look at some of the sanctions, the strategy of sanctions against Putin, the idea that, you know, we're going to pressure the Russian economy, pressure the oligarchs, and perhaps we'll be able to cleave them away from Putin and we'll wind up with some more enlightened Russian figure leading the nation. So when you put that logic to Ukrainians, at least the majority of Ukrainians I speak with, they really scoff at it. And, they, and they're like, listen, the, the, the world doesn't have a Putin problem, particularly with regards to Russia. The world has a Russia problem. Yeah, The war has very real and still majority support inside of Russia. And Ukrainians are quick to note that Russia has always had a very patronizing view towards Ukraine. They call Ukrainians Kolkoks, which is sort of a you know derivative term of like you know our, our little Russian friends over there. Yeah, and that is rife throughout Russian society. You know, I was speaking with a uh, and I, I wrote about this a Ukrainian uh, historian, uh, Yaroslav Herziak, who uh, is a very well-known academic in Ukraine. And he spoke to me at length about that Russia has what it views as a spiritual mission. Um, and yeah. I think that's not uncommon among nations. Again, speaking as an American, I think Americans, we have our version, our sort of spiritual mission. You know, we talked about ourselves as like the city on a hill. Um, that's very much yeah. embedded in our culture. And so... Uh, Yaroslav's point to me was that to, you, to understand Russia's spiritual mission, they had long viewed their spiritual mission as saving the world from the decadence of the West. And so when I said, well, what's an example of that? He said, well, listen, Russia has done that twice before, and they're very proud of it. The first time in, in, in modern history was against Napoleon. When Napoleon was yeah. ravaging Europe, who stopped Napoleon? Russia. The Russians did saving the world from the decadence of the West and the decadence of those revolutions. Yeah. And the other time, obviously, was Hitler. Yeah. His point was when we talk about, when you look at, at Putin and when Putin calls Zelensky a Nazi, you know, and we all in the West, we say, how could he be a Nazi? Zelensky's Jewish. This makes no sense. 
When Putin calls him a Nazi, he's basically saying that Zelensky is a modern day manifestation of the decadence of the West come to Russia that we need to stop. And he is a Nazi just as the Nazis represented Western decadence in another epoch. So if, if you look at Russia and if their, their spiritual mission is to save the world from this decadent West that is now encroached into Ukraine, and if the Western strategy to stop that mission is to apply sanctions to Russia and economic pain on Russia to cleave the Russian people away from Putin, I would just ask, you know, if you think of someone with a spiritual mission, maybe it's someone who's religious, maybe if you're like, let's say you're a Christian and a very devout Christian, does suffering cleave you away from your faith or does it draw you closer to your faith? And I think what we've seen often is that type of suffering, it only, it doesn't cleave people away, it draws them closer together. And so I think these sanctions could very well backfire in the case of cleaving Putin away from the Russian people. And this was a point made to me by um, yeah, several of the Ukrainians I spoke with, uh, again, who are very strident in saying, listen, you know, you need to understand Ukraine doesn't have a Putin problem. Ukraine has a Russia problem. That's fascinating. I guess in a way what comes out of that is this idea that if it's Putin who is you know, people might describe him as sort of psychopathic or, or power mad. And effectively, you know, he's the one uh, leading Russia down this dark path. Uh, and no one really believes this stuff about the Ukrainians being Nazis. In some way, then you can satisfy yourself, well, we just have to get rid of Putin, and then we can normalize. But, but actually, if Russians believe this sincerely, even if uh, it's ultimately a, a crazy kind of error, how how does one change the perception of a country or, or or at least grapple with a country that has a complete perception of itself? And in that sense, I wonder whether actually there is more of a similarity here with China and actually the kind of constant messaging and propaganda that comes from its government. Yes, I think the one area where Russia and China are are very different is that Russia that China is a nation that is is rising and has risen now. And Russia is a nation in decline. And I think that when we talk about the psychology, it's not one that's necessarily, you know, foreign to Western sensibilities. It's this idea that, and, and we've seen it time and time again through history, that people will exchange their freedom for glory. And so that's why we see Putin talking about Russian history all the time. Uh, he's mining grievance for political capital and power. And there's no silver bullet to that. No. And to, to, to be trying to search for strategies that are a silver bullet is sort of a fool's errand. I think we just need to wrap our heads around the trend and then try to, you know, come up with a array of options and strategies that just are responding to the world as we're living in it right now. Fundamentally, it feels like we're, we're back to containment, which, of course, was the, the great Cold War strategy, uh, you know, outlined in the long telegram by by America's sort of preeminent uh, Russia specialist, uh, George Kennan. Yes, and I think sadly, you know, we're seeing the, the world being segmented off into spheres um, and there will be far less uh, cross-pollination between those, those spheres. And, you know, I, I came of age in a world where you could travel to China and travel to Russia and not think twice about it because the world was an open, an open place. Even if people disagreed, it was still, you know, borders by and large uh, were not impermeable boundaries. 
Um, but that yeah. that is typically, if you look at history, an aberration to live in a time like that. And I think we're seeing a hardening of borders and a world that is now re- you know, regulating itself off into various spheres. One positive we might draw from this is actually a strengthening, a kind of reforging of a transatlantic relationship. And I'm, I'm not just talking about the US and the UK, but Europe and the US. Uh, that relationship hit some pretty rocky times, particularly under the Trump presidency. But in, in general, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how the US is pivoting to Asia and how just that the demographic and cultural change in the in the US makes it less relevant for there to be this sort of strong umbilical connection to to Europe. But do you feel that perhaps as a result of this, um, basically being Western market democracies who have to work together, whether it's under NATO or in other formats, um, we're, we're going to see a kind of a strengthening of, of that quite traditional uh, global sort of power relationship? Yes. And so much as, listen, if, if you agree with if you agree with the statement that the world is starting to segregate itself off into various spheres in much the same in much the way it has done throughout history. And, you know, I believe that is a trend that we're seeing right now. One of those spheres becomes what I would just call and has been called the free world. And yeah. for many years, Europe and the United States, you know, the transatlantic partnership was very clear and important. Um, because we understood the difference between the free world and the other side of the Iron Curtain. It was obvious, um, and it didn't need to be placed into context. Now, you know, when we look at sort of the post-Cold War era, what does it mean to be the torchbearers of the free world when the whole world seems free? It just means less. And because it means less, that idea becomes devalued. Well, now suddenly I think the, the what was once the free world is now waking up to the fact that there are again sphere spheres in the world, and to be in the free world actually means something. Again, there is meaning in these partnerships, and we're seeing that meaning very clearly. And I think one of the yes, I agree. One of the positives, and one of the things I think probably surprise has surprised Putin, particularly you know if you if you look back to how NATO did this summer in Afghanistan, is that very quickly uh, when he moved into Ukraine. Everyone remembered what it meant to live in the free world uh, in a matter of, of days. And I think that surprised not only Putin, I actually think it surprised everyone. So it certainly surprised me. Uh, and yeah. that has been a, a very positive uh, corollary of these events in Ukraine. So I guess at the risk of uh, bringing us slightly uh, back down to earth is, uh, of course, uh, there are politicians across Western countries who don't seem particularly enamored with the free world. Um, and, and of course, you've got one uh, in, in the US. You're, I think you're talking to us from Washington, D.C. Um, it feels likely that uh, Donald Trump might once again be the Republican nominee. And certainly his brand of politics appears to have a strong following uh, in the US. And, and without this being a partisan discussion, but a, a discussion about principles, um, if, for example, uh, you know, there's a, a Trump presidency only sort of two short years from now, are we less certain of, of the U.S.'s space, a place in the free world? I don't, I don't necessarily know. I think that Trump is not someone who operates on principles. No. <laughs> he operates on, you know, what is politically expedient and makes sense. Generally, I would say generally speaking, I, and again, I'm not speaking as a part, I'm not saying this like in a negative light about Trump. I don't think he has ever fit neatly into certain categories. I mean, listen, he's someone 
who very strongly, you know, came out against China uh, and led, and I think appropriately led the charge, saying that you know China's interests are not the U.S. interests, and this belief for many years that oh we're just going to open up open China up to free commerce and that's going to cause internal internal reforms inside of the communist regime, you know, that, that we've been led down a primrose path there that has not been in the U.S. interest, the West interest, or really the free world's interest. And he said that, and I think he has been shown to be correct. You know, so if he were to be president in 2024, would he become a sort of, for lack of a better term, Tucker Carlson sort of isolationist? Um, I don't know. He could. And that would be, I think, a huge, a huge mistake, you know, or he could follow a tack that would be sort of more like, a, you know, a Ronald Reagan, uh, which to me would seem probably the role that the United States should be playing uh, at, at this moment if conditions are, are similar in a couple of years. I think for the first time in a long time, where the parties sit on foreign policy issues seems to be a little bit of a toss up. And I think it was at least being in the United States and seeing in the days after Russia invaded Ukraine, it was the first bipartisan moment we had witnessed in the U.S. in, I'd say, since September 11th. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of remarkable. The pandemic didn't do it for us. Um, very few things did it. It's, it, 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 was, it was amazing to see lawmakers from across the aisle all pretty much unified in the idea that what Russia was doing in Ukraine was atrocious and the U.S. needed to leave. Finally, Elliot, we're having this conversation at a time when, in spite of the uh, sort of bipartisan nature of US foreign policy at the moment, domestic policy remains incredibly divided. Uh, the, most recently, the, the debate over Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court, just one case study of that. Um, what is the task for Biden to try to unite a country in some way as he leads his nation in, in what has turned into a major sort of geostrategic crisis. How important is that unity on the home front? I think the, you know, the unity is obviously important with regards to foreign affairs, but I think what's, what, what we also have to keep in mind is that when it comes to foreign affairs, the threshold for disunity in the United States is a little bit higher. And what I mean is, and I'll just be blunt, most Americans don't pay and have never paid a lot of attention to foreign policy until it affects them. And the threshold is very high for it affecting Americans. So when Biden is saying, and he's been very clear about this, there will be no boots on the ground in Ukraine, period, end of story. The, the basic signal he's sending to Americans is this is not going to affect you outside uh, maybe some, some nominal increased spending as we arm the Ukrainians. And at that point, most many Americans stop paying attention. And the ones who are still paying attention, it becomes a little bit of a parlor game for them. And that's very different than if, let's yeah. say, you're Polish, obviously, or you live in Europe. And the what's happening in Ukraine is right on your border or could very quickly uh, affect you just due to the obvious statement of geography. So, yes, it's important to keep the U.S. united on the issue of Ukraine. But I would just note... Uh, disunity in a way that would affect Biden's political calculus would only occur if Americans really were mobilized and engaged and passionate about the policies the administration was going to have 
in Ukraine to a similar degree that they're passionate about the the policies that really animate America's political discourse that are obviously issues to do with, yes, Roe v. Wade or gender or, or race or you name it. Uh, and I think Americans are strident about those issues because they view those issues as actually affecting them, whereas they look to Ukraine and to them, you know, to many, it seems as an abstraction. You know, it's famously been said that, you know, war is the way that Americans learn geography. And I think that's just that's just because of the, you know, the, the obvious statement that there's an ocean between us and Ukraine. Elliot Ackerman, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. We've covered a lot of different ground. And thank you very much uh, for joining me. Yeah, my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.